leaders, if you're not engaging people, if you're not creating an environment of psychological safety, right? So you can engage people. I can say, hey, John, I need you to come up with three improvement ideas this month. But if there's some negative dynamic that comes with you speaking up, um, you know, it's easier said than done. to Equality Podcast. We are happy to have with us today Mark Raven. He needs no introduction, but Mark is a consultant, speaker, author, podcaster, extraordinaire. Uh, Mark, why don't you say hi to everybody? Hi, everybody. Thanks, uh, Jake and John, for having me here. <laughs> I don't know how not to freak out. I have Mark Raven on. Let's go. <laughs> well, um, so, yes, Mark, we are happy to have you on the show today. Um, I love measures of success. Um, and here's what was interesting to me. The, the content of the book is everything that kind of needs to be said and, you know, that uh, I learned about. Yeah, go ahead and uh, show that to folks. There it is. Sorry to interrupt with that, but you can't mention an author's book without expecting them to uh, hold it up to the camera. I, I got yep, five absolutely. just beneath the camera ready to attack at all times. <laughs> um, but it was the the book is filled with education that I received, you know, kind of mostly verbally, um, as well as, you know, learned through making mistakes and, um, you know, through coaching with sensei and stuff like that. And so when it came out, um, I picked up a copy and went through it and it's all, you know, pens and highlighters now. And I just thought, what a great, um, tool, you know, education for folks. And I, I haven't seen it before. So I don't know if you drew inspiration from anywhere else or just the absence no. of uh, education out there on this, but great job, man. I really, really thanks. appreciate the book. Well, thanks. And I mean, I, I did not invent the methods that are in the book. Um, process behavior charts, as they're called by the statistician Don Wheeler. So Don Wheeler is somebody, you know, he, he wrote uh, probably the most popular, the most readable of his books for a business audience is a book called Understanding Variation, which is there on the bookshelf. I always have a copy of that nearby. I got introduced to that book 25 years ago, which is, you know, this practical application of statistical process control to business measures. And, you know, it's a, it's a thin book. Maybe my book should have been as thin, but thin in a good way, like meaning it's not overwhelming. Um, it's, it's very readable for being a book about statistical methods. And I thought, you know, and, and so then before him, you know, there was influence of Dr. Deming and Walter Schuhart. These methods are almost 100 years old. Um, but I, I wanted to write my version of the book for one, like anyone who's writing, who's written a book will tell you, it's a great way to learn. Like if you think you know so, enough about a topic to write a book, you will learn what you don't know by challenging yourself um, to write a book. Um, Don Wheeler was gracious enough to write the foreword for the book. I was a little scared to ask him to write the foreword because the response could have been, he could have brushed me off or he could have said, no, this is garbage. You shouldn't publish it. And, um, you know, so it was very nice. Of, I, I was thrilled. I fanboy with him, Jake, when I had the chance to meet <laughs> Don Wheeler. These I, things, there's transitive property here. So if you ever meet Don Wheeler, I expect you to um, 
to have a fanboy moment too. But Don Wheeler's work is great. Like I, I didn't, I'm not trying to replace his book. Uh, I still recommend it to people, but I want to write something maybe with some more contemporary examples, some healthcare examples, because I've done a lot of work in healthcare. And I've, I've, I've heard feedback from people that it's a good, you know, if you've read Wheeler's book, uh, my book is a good follow-up. It's, it's not meant to be a replacement, but, you know, in a way I'm, I'm hoping to reach maybe a broad, a, a business audience that, that might not seek out Wheeler's book. Um, if Well, in my circle, you'll mark, you'll be very happy to know that instead of saying respect the null, we very common go respect the Graben. And what we mean by that is uh, people use KPIs as a mode to just like jump in and immediately react to something. Mm -hmm. Whereas like, like the whole, like if I had to put one central theme, it's like KPIs are a reason to not act and they are a structure for you to stop acting when it's unnecessary. Right. right. And it depends. And right. So what, what Shuhart and Deming and Wheeler have taught us and what I'm trying to pass along is knowing when to react and when to take a breath, take a beat, take a step back and, and try to improve your system in a way that's decidedly less reactive. And process behavior charts show us how to do that. There's a little bit of math. There's the visualization of the data as, as a chart. Uh, it's really not that, I don't think it's that intimidating. It's, it's arithmetic, it's not calculus. You know, it's very approachable, but I, I think this is one of these management methods. It's not taught in MBA programs. It's, I think, the most useful management method and concepts that people don't know about. So my, my goal of writing the book was to try to help expose more people to this approach. I've only been in one company that did that effectively, and that's companies that have John in them. <laughs> like, that's, that's literally, literally. Well, you know what we did study in my MBA was Mark Graben. Um, I, uh, really? Yeah, what? I kind of took it. When was this, John? Give me a year. 2013. Oh, um, my gosh. I remember the eighth grade. It was, it was <laughs> Well, I uh, took kind of a uh, sidetrack in my program in healthcare management because mm -hmm. uh, PPACA was bleeding edge. In fact, the like the professor from Harvard had to come teach the case study because he just wrote it, you know, like last month. Um, and uh, in the lean healthcare conversation, uh, your name came up. So that's pretty cool. Um, well, so thank you. Here we are talking now. So you might have been exposed to lean hospitals. You know, Jake, at the time, I wasn't, I wasn't thinking of you because I didn't know you, but I did an April Fool's joke on my blog one year, the announcement of an illustrated children's book called Baby's First Lean Book. So maybe... <laughs> We need to bring that to market as, as a celebration of like then to now. We need to bring that to market. Maybe yeah, yeah. That, that would have been helpful for young Jake. Yeah. I would also, I would absolutely die to see Mark Graven put out a series of process behavior charts that are like around my weight or something highly offensive. <laughs> Is that offensive or informative? I mean, that's, I, you know, uh, I mean, look, I've, I've done process behavior charts um, on, on that number on the scale. That's just one metric. You know, I, mean, I think there's a, a business lesson there um, applied to health of, you know, hey, don't, don't fixate too much on one metric, but process of behavior charts can help you uh, understand, hey, that number on the scale is different than yesterday because odds are it's going to be different. What's worth uh, freaking out about or getting excited about um, what's the, you know, the natural fluctuation in your weight versus, hey, if you're trying to lose weight, 
you can see statistical signals on that process behavior chart that tell you, hey, you're making statistically meaningful progress. Or if you're trying to maintain and you see that number start creeping to the upper limit, whoops, you know, you, then you, you may want to, you know, kind of then think about the, the causal analysis, right? The chart won't tell you why your weight has gone up. Are you exercising less, eating more, eating worse, drinking more? The chart won't tell you that. So whether it's, you know, weight or a, a, a business KPI, the chart is not a substitute for knowing your system or going to the Gemba or talking to people. Um, but the chart, to your point, Jake, will tell you like when you would be wasting people's time asking for a root cause. So Jake, do an A3 if your weight's 0.7 pounds higher than it was the day before, there's literally no point in doing an A3 or looking for a root cause. That's, that's, that's just a waste of time. John and I talk a lot about that punishment A3, right, John? Yeah, yeah. The uh, use of tools and uh, structure to, you know, yeah, punish people, you know, like I want you to feel bad because I didn't get what I wanted. So go do a bunch of extra work, you know? Yeah. Well, I mean, well, there's, there's, there's a dynamic there too, starting to, to jump in, like in organizations where if people are speaking up to identify problems or they have an improvement idea, boom, oh, go do an A3 without yeah. support or help or time. And then, then, if, if, they, if the culture's not right, it feels like a punishment and people say, well, I, I'm already overwhelmed. Why would I speak up? Because they pile more work on me. Like that's, that's not right. what the A3 process is supposed to be or what the culture around that is supposed to be. Well, and it's just a good reminder. Like you can't out-tool bad culture. You can't out-tool bad no. leadership, right? No, no. Oh, give me some thoughts there, Mark. How do you go about you're a consultant, right? Obviously very successful engaging with businesses. How do you go about your, you, you land a deal, you're at a place and like you can just feel the leadership, the culture is like, you know, absolute ass. Like how do you, how do you go about knowing no matter what tool you bring in place, you have that barrier in front of you? Well, I mean, that's, I mean, that's, that, that, there's a lot that could be said there. And uh, that's a very rich question. Um, I mean, there's different dimensions. One, I, I, I would never, I would try to never frame what I'm doing as coming in with tools or to implement tools. Um, it's more often a case of coming in to help solve problems than applying the right tools as needed. Um, sometimes you're asked to come in and solve one problem and you see a different problem or a different framing of the problem that you think might be more accurate or more important. Um, so there's this fine line between working on what you've been asked to work on. And like, I think a, a, a good consultant, and I don't have this mastered by any point, but there's responding to client needs, there's gonna be a pull, but then there's a the time you need to push when you identify opportunities or times where you see the tools not lining up with culture. So an example I would see more often than not um, especially in healthcare organizations, is being, you know, walking through an organization and seeing uh, these whiteboards, these standardized whiteboards or huddle boards or process improvement boards that are blank. Like what, what's, you know, take a breath and, and say, you know, what, what's going on here? Uh, the problem, I guarantee, is not with the format of the board. I mean, it could be the location of the board is in a super inconvenient spot, but so, you, you know, you could, so you think a board like that maybe is a tool, 
But if you put up a board like that and, you, and, and leaders are never asking employees for their ideas, if leaders aren't celebrating people pointing out problems, like why, why, why spend the money on the board, especially if it's you know, etched and beautifully designed and like kind of permanent, as opposed to just blocking out sections of the board with a, a marker, like, whoops, that might get erased accidentally, but better yet, you tweak the board. You know, you, you, you put a corner of the board where you say, here's where we're gonna post and, and talk uh, employee ideas and uh, good problem to have, that, that part of the board's too small for all the ideas you're generating. So, so you know, change, change the board, um, improve the board that's meant to capture improvements. So, um, but back, I think back to your question, there's a fine line there. Like what, what's your mandate versus trying to help influence the client on what the boundaries and the scope should be? You know, sometimes you have to pick your battles or say, well, here, here are other things that are important, but we don't have uh, permission to work on it right now. So, you know, it may go on hold, it, you know, as with a lot of things, you know, I think when you're prioritizing and lean, it's not just yes, no, it might be yes, work on it. No, don't work on it. But then there's that third category of or not now. Yeah. I walked one site where they had an employee suggestion board and the uh, couple of items that were on there, you know, had a date over here and it was three years old. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And uh, well, I found the problem. Uh, <laughs> Blow the dust off. Yeah. Yeah. No, it, I mean, there, there's did. the like, artifacts, right? There's yeah. the empty suggestion box. Yeah. We, we can do better than that. And, you know, uh, if that box is empty, there's a problem statement there. And the countermeasure right. might involve, you know, countermeasures might involve um, taking down the box and engaging people in a more visual and transparent way. But maybe, you know, back to the point of engaging people. If that, if that suggestion box is empty or that whiteboard is empty, the problem is not the employees, right? Don't blame the employees. Like, oh, well, clearly they don't have any ideas. No, they have ideas. You're, you're, you're you know, as, you know, as leaders, if you're not engaging people, if you're not creating an environment of psychological safety, right? So you can engage people. I can say, hey, John, I need you to come up with three improvement ideas this month. But if there's some negative dynamic that comes with you speaking up, um, you know it's easier said than done. As a leader, you've got to create the environment uh, where, where where people feel safe to speak up, and and that includes people feeling like it's worth their time. Like there, there's a, a professor at University of Texas Austin, um, Ethan Burris, who's done research on employees speaking up or not speaking up, whether it's related to kaizen or what have you. And the two factors that prevent people from speaking up, like the one that would probably jump to mind would be fear. The biggest factor by, by a smidge is a different F word, futility. And I think that that's really powerful and insightful. It's not that people are afraid to speak up, it's just not worth their effort. And that's a different problem for leaders to work on. That's a that's a fascinating like segment. I was gonna comment on the employee suggestion box that. The first time you use it as a deflection box, it becomes worthless and you might as well throw it away. Mm -hmm. Or any problem anyone comes to you with, like, well, there's a box right there. And then you immediately yep. don't get the outcomes yep. you want. And that is a, like a strong lesson in futility. Like, well said, well said. Yeah, and uh, I'm thinking back to one international manufacturer I worked with and they had an um, employee suggestion program um, 
you know, little cards to fill out. And it, it was really well done. They were working on their gold certification, right? So it was fairly mature. Mm-hmm. And the employee was expected to check like which silo, you know, SQDC is this suggestion and, you know, write it out. And then once a week, there was a committee that would review them and mm-hmm. implement them. And uh, the folks that, uh, and, you know, when I say committee, it was like that cell leader along with like the lean leader for the site, HSE oh. guy, you okay. know, that sort of thing. Um, and, uh, and then they would put them in a, you know, uh, do it now, uh, mm-hmm. parking lot, you know, uh, CapEx required, you know, stuff like that yeah. um, and get okay. them done. And all of the employees that, you know, contributed got thanked personally for their mm-hmm. idea and got feedback. Sure. Like, hey, we're not going to do this right now, but here's why. Um, sure. That's so, important. Yeah. So that was a, an example of a fairly formal and expensive uh, implementation that uh, was done well, I thought. You know, the, the communication back to the employee just ensured like, hey, we are checking these every week mm-hmm. and everybody could see the board, you know, the yeah. parking lot, you know, where, where all of these cards were, were yeah. stored. Um, but there were a couple of cells in the plant where, you know, the area leader was not super good with people. Mm-hmm. Um, and you can't out-tool that. And they had they yeah. had worse outcomes because uh, they they weren't good with people, right? Yeah. So I mean, w- hearing the description of you know where it was working well, I would say I mean that system to me sounds better than most. If that quote unquote committee was more local, that's good, right? There's some companies where um, the the suggestion box or you know the the electronic section suggestion box model escalates everything to the very top of the organization. And like that, that's, that's not Kaizen. Um, Problems are punitive. Yeah. (laughs) Um, And, you know, a weekly review is better than a monthly review or a quarterly review. But I mean, I would suggest, you know, in a situation like that, I would only send something to the quote unquote committee by exception. What I've seen work best is more real time uh, where somebody has got an idea um, and I agree with, you know, uh, you know, it's respectful and it's helpful to give people feedback if their idea is, um, you know, impractical for some way, too expensive, violates uh, safety rules, violates regulatory guidelines, what have you. But what I've learned about Kaizen is moving beyond the yes, no dynamic of the suggestion box. So if Jake, you were to come to me and say, well, I think we should do such and such. I would step back and ask, well, what, what's the problem? What's the opportunity? Let's define that first. Let's understand that. And then as leaders, you're compelled, if, if that idea, that initial idea isn't workable, it doesn't seem right, it's on the leader to help the employee and the team brainstorm more ideas, right? So you're compelled to solve the problem once there's recognition of that, and instead of just rejecting the idea. So, I mean, Again, like what you were describing there sounds better than the way a lot of organizations would operate, but I would argue there's still opportunity to you know, further refine that approach if, if, they, if they asked me. I have a theory I've been sitting on, and I want, I want Mark's opinion first and then John's because I haven't shared it with either one of you. I think it is my, like, as much time and effort and energy as I've spent into this like community, it is my personal belief 
without a whole bunch of data, even though there is some data, that the number one thing we can do to invoke this spirit of Kaizen, this continuous improvement, this mindset of working on the business as well as in it when available, is to just give the employees more free time than we currently give frontline associates. Yeah. That's the single most powerful thing we could do. Yep. Whereas right now we have them at 95% efficiency. Yep. You know, they get a three minute chance to go take a pee and go to their lunch. Yeah. When do they even have time to synthesize and reflect on information that's hit them all day right. to make these type of decisions? So, so I'd yeah. like to hear from you, Mark, is there a more powerful way than just giving folks the time to actually do it? You're spot on. That's a really key thing. So if, if, if leaders or a team say, we have lots of ideas, but we don't have time to work on them. That is a solvable problem. Instead of using that as an excuse where you say, oh, okay, well, never mind. No, no Kaizen. Um, I'll tell you a story of visiting the Toyota plant in San Antonio. And when I went with a group of local healthcare leaders. And uh, I saw the pictures on, on LinkedIn whenever uh -huh. that took place. Yeah. And, and one of the things they, and they, they'll struggle with this. So, so well, you know, they're, they're, They'll say, we don't have time for improvement, which I think a more accurate problem statement is we haven't figured out how to make time for improvement. But anyway, they asked the Toyota tour guide what, you know, people there in the plant seemed really busy. Like they were not racing around. Like the pace of work was good. Like it seemed, you know, it wasn't frantic. Uh, it was a good pace of work, but they're building trucks. When do you have time for Kaizen? And the tour guide who had been a team member in the paint shop said, well, we have an idea. And if we aren't able to find time to work on it during the day, because guess what? They do have downtime. There are opportunities that come up. The, the team member tour guide said, they'll want to stay and work overtime to work on the improvement. Then the healthcare leader's jaws drop because they're like, oh, overtime is bad. I'm like, well, not all overtime is equally bad. If you can spend 30 minutes post your shift getting paid to work on improvements that make the organization better, why wouldn't you make that investment? in the organization and that investment in your people and developing them and strengthening that sense of loyalty that they have to the organization, right? And, the, and there was a tour guide, one other quick story in Japan at a Toyota plant in Japan, professional tour guide, right? This is part of public relations. So different than a team member being put in a tour guide role. And I asked this tour guide, you know, you talk about Kaizen and employee ideas. What do you do if you have an idea? And, and, and here's what she said. She said, if I have an idea, I talk to my supervisor and they let me implement it. There's no committee, right? I mean, like, you know, there are some problems where um, you want to get input from others, but a lot of it is just this, just very, you know, quick response. Um, unless there's a compelling reason not to let the employee do it. And I think having the employees participating in Kaizen is much more powerful than just submitting an idea and then getting some feedback at the end. Yeah. And, you know, the, uh, cultural benefits with Kaizen. Like, I, I think sometimes some of the people I talk to um, conflate Kaizen with improving the business. And they forget that one of the most powerful parts is actually the development of the people and the relationships that are formed. Like you mentioned, if I have to stay overtime for 30 minutes, you don't have to stay overtime for 30 minutes, you know, to solve a problem. Um, this is cool, right? As an employee, I get to work with my team to mm -hmm. solve problems, not just make widgets. Mm -hmm. And, you know, the dynamic there is different than when the line is running, right? Yes. Um, and that, that pays dividends 
it's like um, an annuity. You know, it keeps mm -hmm. paying, right? right? Um, well, because investing in the people is investing in the business. Yes. It's yeah. the same thing. Yeah. John, I feel like you need a jingle there. If you have a structured pain point, then you need <laughs> cash now. And now for something completely different. <laughs> for those of you out there in YouTube land, you may have noticed that I am dressed to the nines and Jake is wearing a shitty t-shirt. This is by design because for some reason, Jake thought he outdressed me in the Nathan Corliss episode, which I'm sure you've all seen. Uh, that was not the case. My vintage, for those about to rock, we salute you t-shirt far outshined Jake's whatever men's warehouse ensemble. But just to prove a point, I went ahead and dressed up today just to dememonstrate my sartorial superiority. So putting yeah, that he, out there in the world, you, you guys can vote in the comments section and I win. Yeah, you, you ordered the whole L.L. Bean catalog there, I see. This is not L.L. Bean. First of all, this is what is this? This is Empire and it's Italian. So therefore, awesome. Um, oh, my gosh. Well, and, and for all the my, folks uh, that don't know why I win today, and this is very embarrassing, this is a t-shirt my wife made me that says, oh, hell yeah, on the top, because every time I improve something, that's a sound I make at home she's grown to absolutely hate. <laughs> and uh, it's an embarrassing photo of me in my living room as well. And I and, wear that <clears throat> as the spirit of Kaizen. All of my suits are bespoke because I have a weird shaped body, so I don't get to shop off the rack. Uh, well, Speaking of which, are, I got people the, are uh, bespoken, but that's a, that means something totally different than what you think it means. I got these uh, slacks. I got this suit last year for our um, Antrim dinner on March 10th. And anyway, I haven't worn them since. And I put them on and there's like six inches of space. Like that's how much weight I've lost. So wow. I went to the uh, went to my tailor and he's like, I can't take these in this far. Like that's too much material. I can't do it. So. I guess I have to uh, gain some weight back. I don't know. I don't know how to solve this you know, one. You're looking a little thin this day. I didn't realize Mark was as fit as he was. We went out for a hike one time and, you know, I hide it really well on camera that I'm uh, egregiously out of shape. And <laughs> man, I was absolutely dying. And Mark was like, are you done yet? The same trail that me and you used to go on down here in this part of the world. Oh, yeah. Hey, I've got a pretty cool video of a tarantula we found on that trail. Um, wow. Yeah, it was pretty cool. Um, by the way, Mark is, of course, the best dressed as the guest. So just to throw that out there, thank you, Mark, for your... Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm in some California casual leisure, athleisure wear here. It, yeah, it, there you go. It must be below 69 and a half because the California people whip out the, the jacket immediately. It hits 69, <laughs> the jacket comes out. And if it, it doesn't if, start with a seven. If it goes below 60, out come the puffy coats and the Uggs boots. Yeah. Yeah, there you go. There you go. And Mark, you're an MIT alum, uh, correct? That is correct. Yes. Um, Can't wreck the rat. Gra gra uh, graduate school. I would I, I would not have been admitted as an undergrad. And I think there's an important distinction there. Like, you know, I think uh, I'm, I'm proud of the opportunity to attend uh, grad school at MIT. And there, there's smart people there. But boy, the people who get accepted to MIT as an undergrad are the smart of the smart. So I think, yeah, I think that is worth calling out. But um, yeah, um, program at MIT, I'll give a shout out. It's called Leaders for Global Operations Program. Yeah, I, uh, I took classes in supply chain management from the uh, Center for Transportation and Logistics. And uh, oh, right. shout out their great 
group of instructors and peers. Um, you know, it was all digital, which was kind of cutting edge back when I did it. Um, was David, great Simke, experience. David Simke Levy one of the professors in that? Yes. Yep. So he was one of my undergraduate professors at Northwestern and then later ended up uh, at, at MIT. Oh, right on. Awesome. He's great. Small, uh, small world. Yeah. Uh, I don't remember the names of all of my professors from undergrad because that was almost 30 years ago, but uh, he, he stood out. He did a, a transportation logistics class that was uh, that was really good. Well, I had a, a professor um, in my MBA and uh, won't call him out because we're not that close, but uh, he's a like a city manager. Um, and what a fantastic guy. You know, it's it's just cool. The influence that some people have on you, you know, in your development, mm -hmm. uh, just the you know, he took this very. Uh, pragmatic approach to everything where he didn't ignore the whole person and like mm -hmm. the emotions people are bringing to the table. Um, but at the same time was very crisp in here's the problems. Let's agree on a problem statement. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And he had this ability to get everybody to pull on the same rope in the same direction. And it might be a shitty rope, but it was getting pulled on in the right direction. Um, and that was in, in contrast to a lot of us as students who thought we were hot shit and we were all trying to pull on a different rope in a different direction just because I can, right? Mm -hmm. um, and to see him sort of wrangle all of these doctors and lawyers and whatever, you know, and, and get them to pull in one direction, um, it really had a, a strong influence on me. And, and mm -hmm. I appreciate that. All right. So I would, uh, I would say real quick, isn't, isn't that what leadership's all about? Helping create an environment where people are all pulling in the same direction for yeah the right, that's just it and want the right to. reasons right and want to and oh that's making it in the show is there a drawer full of dirty kleenex there a whole drawer yes. full of dirty kleenex well, is. i mean some of them are clean but i like to reuse them I, like i don't use the full Kleenex, you know, so I'll just fold that side over and then reuse the other side. Can we zoom in on my face for a second? Do we like to reuse your Kleenex? What, why wouldn't you? I mean, if you're not using the full surface area, this is good for the planet. I feel Mark, like what is I, the, what is the healthcare take on that? I, I, well, I, as an engineer, I'm not qualified to say, but that seems like the type of detail, like when I've been able to go to Japan, like something that a Japanese plant manager would brag about, John. Yeah. Awesome. See, <laughs> there you go. All right. All right, cool. So, um, Mark, tell us a little bit about what you got going on in your life right now. What's cool? What's hot? What's burning on your mind? Um, so one, one thing that's cool and new is sort of, uh, well, not, not sort of, is a resumption of work travel. Um, because most of the consulting I've done is in healthcare. Um, I was working with a client right up until you know, this is March, 2020, uh, the day they canceled the NCAA tournament was the day, like I was coming home and with the client, like, okay, well, maybe we'll see in a couple months. Well, 23 months, you know, have gone, have gone by. We don't need to rehash all that, but, you know, during the pandemic, my, my focus of, of my work has shifted. Um, I've done a lot of marketing work. Um, so there's a, I, even though I, I have my own company and I work independently a lot, there's a healthcare advisory firm called Value Capture that I do a lot of consulting through with uh, with their clients. I have been doing a lot of marketing work with them, you know, trying to um, kind of help set things up for when we get back to normal. And 
you know, as, as business has picked up there and as healthcare organizations have been more open to having outsiders come back in, either for health reasons or for financial reasons, um, I've recently had the opportunity to be back out working through value capture with a healthcare client, which, um, which is great because after, after that pause and, and that um, time away, it's, it's good to get back out into the field, working with people, helping them solve problems, help them develop um, themselves. So that's old, but it's new again. Um, yeah. One other thing I, I, I did a lot of during pandemic times and I've really been enjoying uh, is a new podcast series called My Favorite Mistake. So, you know, I've been podcasting uh, about lean since 2006 and um, started this other podcast that I've really enjoyed, a little bit broader focus on learning from mistakes. I've been doing a podcast for Value Capture, um, talking to their clients and former clients and healthcare leaders. Um, so, you know, uh, I'm not one to sit even, you know, uh, not one to sit and watch Netflix all day. So I managed to keep myself busy, even if it wasn't with um, client work, but again, good to be back to doing that. It resonates with me so very well as in the, the height of the pandemic, uh, lost my job, mm -hmm. uh, you know, sat at home, like, what am I going to do other than get fatter? Mm -hmm. And so you kicked off our, kicked off our own business, wrote a book, went after the, the black belt to get my name out of the market yeah. a little further, focused on the That's LinkedIn great. brand. And I have to get your honest descent on where this brand sits today as Jake Harold, the funniest lean guy. Where, wait, say that again. What do you think what? of the brand like in the marketplace? Um, I, as, my, as, as a lean consultant, I feel compelled to ask Jake, show me the data. How do you know that that's true? <laughs> uh, Ooh. Is Data funniest, on a qualitative is, analysis. It's funniest measurable. Um, and, and look, does that matter? So I'm not of the school, like there, there's like Dr. Deming, uh, the late Dr. Deming gets misquoted a lot where people say like, oh, well, as Deming says, if you can't measure it, you can't manage it. Mm -hmm. That's not what he meant. Like the full quote is something along the lines of, well, many people say, if you can't measure it, you can't manage it. And that's a bunch of hogwash because he used words <laughs> like that, right? So um, yeah, so I'm, I'm just giving you grief about quantifying funniest. Well, um, I mean, look, you know, people, everybody who's published a book, I don't know if you did this, but you know, people say best-selling book. I'm like, okay, what's the operational definition of best-selling? Mm -hmm. I made it, it and it sold. Matter. My yeah. previous non-created books did not sell. Yeah. So therefore, <laughs> its only category is best-selling. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, hospitals, you, you might have depending on how big the city is, five different hospitals putting up billboards saying they're the best. I'm like, okay. Based on, based on what, how, how do you know? Yeah. Um, but if you're comfortable with the claim, uh, <laughs> John, trust in Raven, a, all else bring data. Yeah. yeah. I was <laughs> in a, uh, um, hospital, uh, kind of helping them out a little bit. And, uh, in the, um, sanitation room, the, you know, there's a dirty side and a clean side mm -hmm. and the dirty side had, um, positive air pressure and was 78 degrees. And, uh, they're like, well, we're, we're doing, there was a whole sheet. It was like a plastic sheet up, they're like we're doing construction. Mm -hmm. I'm like, um, I'm pretty sure that this is not going to work. <laughs> you know, uh, anyway, so I won't name the hospital, but, uh, if you die from sepsis, that's where you got it. Mm -hmm. 
<laughs> That's pretty cool. I really enjoyed my favorite mistake, which uh, apologies for, for mistitling that on a previous episode, which Jake pointed out over and oh over, my and over gosh, again. Yes. What, 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 what was your mistake, John? <laughs> um, my favorite mistake was misquoting the name of my favorite mistake. What, 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 what did you call it? That's what I was, I was wondering. I can't remember. What did I call it? What, what did you call it? Like my favorite misstep or uh, some, something like it was just my very biggest, agile. My best mistake. mistake or, yeah. No. My yeah, best I mistake. My, I mean, best. Oh, wait. It's John. It's John for a second. So let me get into character. My preferred mishap. <laughs> <laughs> what, how come I always turn British when you. I don't know. Like, <laughs> my, <laughs> my British mistake. If, when it's John, it goes British. I don't know why. Apparently, if you're like north of the Mason-Dixon and on the East Coast, you're automatically British. If you're outside of the border Almost. of Texas, like you're British to me. <laughs> but I mean, that's, that's the line. You Oklahoma British people are just, I can't do it. <laughs> but I mean, calling it a best mistake is more in line with the thinking of the podcast series as opposed to biggest. And sometimes yeah. when I talk to guests. Oh, my biggest mistake. That's what it was. Yeah. It was my biggest oh, mistake. Oh, thanks, Jake. Appreciate yeah. appreciate that. Yeah, throw me right under the bus. We're comfortable with we're comfortable with calling out problems. That's fine as as lean, <laughs> lean practitioners, right? Um, but you know, a biggest mistake might be a favorite mistake, but a favorite mistake doesn't have to be your biggest mistake. Right. It's really about the learning and you know a, a mistake that's big enough to stick with you and something that you would maybe try to avoid repeating. Yeah. Oh, I've got uh, a few favorite mistakes, and you know, it's a it's a good point i like the vibe of the show right um i've worked in companies where you know you weren't supposed to make mistakes mm -hmm. like mm -hmm. people covered them up which right. was foreign to me and and a little bizarre but that's a really powerful tool you know sometimes i can learn from other people's mistakes and sometimes i can't sometimes i mm -hmm. learn from you know my own mistakes and the ability of leadership to create that culture where mm -hmm. we get that out in the open. Yes, we're human. We tried something. It didn't work. Sometimes right. it disastrously didn't work. You know, Ray Dalio says, uh, you know, you have to have room to fail. And I remember, I, I can't remember NPR or something. He was, you know, being interviewed and they said, well, how far do you take that? And he said, you can wreck the car, but you can't total it. You know, sure. um, but the where we draw that line for mm -hmm. like negative consequence is critical in our different industries right and mm -hmm. obviously there's some industries you know you you're in hospitals right a, a brain surgeon has got this bright red line there because of you know kind of how risky uh, the work is you know a nuclear scientist for example or somebody running a nuclear power plant, uh, maybe an army general. But for most of us that are out in regular jobs, building stuff or shipping stuff or providing accounting services, right? Mm -hmm. A lot of the uh, culture that I've experienced in terms of what do we accept and discuss and learn and grow from as a group, right? Mm -hmm. I hate to say it, but it's pegged to the ego of the person in charge. I see that very, so much, John. Yeah, it's so very common, my life right? in warehouses. I just, it is always, I am sending some shitty box to somebody sitting at home, click a button on Amazon. I'm going to get it to them in the next day or two, right? Like, why is this so mission critical? We're going to fire people. We're going to take people's livelihoods. 
We're going to treat them punitively. We're going to attack their character for failing to move this box. Like, come on, man. Come on. This isn't life or death. If it was brain surgery, I'd have a very different opinion. Yeah. yeah. I mean, one, one thing I would add is when you, when you think about, I mean, if I were asked the Ray Dalio question, um, I think when somebody proposes um, an improvement experiment, and, and, and I think we, you know, we should think of improvements as tests or experiments. Like, I don't have an idea, I have a hypothesis. If we do something, it will make things better. And there's a risk that it won't work. I think that's okay. Now, I think like as a leader, if you're talking to an employee and somebody has identified a problem and they've proposed a countermeasure, like if, if, if you know, you know what they're going to test is likely to cause harm to somebody, you would call timeout and say, we need to not rush into running that experiment. So there's that filter. And I think that comes up as a barrier to trying the experiment very rarely. Even, even in healthcare, I think that would be very rarely. So you can kind of think through like, well, what's, what's really, what is the risk of trying something that doesn't work? And I think the one way of addressing that is to make the experiment small. Like what's the smallest experiment that you could run to try to invalidate the hypothesis, right? So when I, so there's times, just one example, somebody I, coaching through somebody at a hospital, they, somebody would have an idea and they'd say, well, you know, we, we would make things better if we bought this piece of equipment for every hospital room. So the traditional thinking would be you talk about it forever, and then you make a decision and you buy one for every room. And I kind of push back and ask, well, what's the smallest, quickest experiment you could do before spending all that money? Like, oh, well, you know, maybe we could, we, could, we, we could do one unit first. I'm like, well, is that the smallest? Well, hmm, we, could, we could try one in one room. You know, and, and so, you know, if you're going to make a mistake, you want to do it at a small scale. And I think one of the themes that comes up, I think there's a connection here from lean thinking and what I've been taught and what we talk about in the podcast is that the freedom to make small mistakes prevents larger mistakes down the road. Yeah, definitely. Um, now, what about um, offline uh, experiments? So I've worked in environments where that was impossible, you know, uh, die stamping, for example, like I don't have a... a spare die machine and spare sure. floor space, you know, but, the, but there are environments where you can take the experiment offline. Um, tell me a little bit about that. It, first of all, in terms of risk management, mm. you know, where's the, where's the line where you say we can't practice this in real life. And then I, I guess you kind of answered the second part, which is if you have to practice in real life, what are some considerations uh, before you run the experiment? I mean, I think it's easier to answer that second part. So one, one thing I think in terms of, um, yeah, you think if you try an experiment, how easily can you click undo? So I think of examples, let's say in a nursing station, um, in a hospital, if somebody says, I think it would help the move, if we move the printer from here to there, the cost of doing that is minimal. The risk, I'm like, well, if, if it turns out that didn't work out the way we hypothesized, we could always move the printer back to where it was, or we could move the printer somewhere else. Like the, the threshold for let's just try it and see what happens is pretty thin. We don't need to do simulation exercises and you know, all this rigorous analysis. Let's just try it. But if somebody is saying, I think we should tear down that wall, 
on this end of the nursing station, that's, you're gonna be more cautious about that. You're gonna get more input from more stakeholders. Um, you're gonna ask other people, is there something, is there some potential downside to taking down that wall that we're not anticipating? Because the last thing you'd wanna do is tear down the wall and three days later, go putting in a request to rebuild the wall. So I think you, you look through criteria like that. What's the risk of the experiment? And, and part of that is you know, the question of, if it doesn't work out, how do we adjust or undo what we tried? So you could take it offline through, we're not gonna build an entire hospital unit to experiment in, but this is where you could go to a room and with uh, mock-ups or a drawing, or like, you know, I'm not talking computer simulation, but you could try, um, you know, to, to take, you know, like you said, take it offline, uh, reduce the risk and do the learning in a way that doesn't disrupt ongoing operations or doesn't increase the risk to operations. Can you give so, me, like you do a project such as that, it's successful. You've had your first little tiny bitty baby win from a tiny experiment. Well, give us the Mark Graben flavor, flavor, Mark Graben flavor mm -hmm. of how you celebrate that win, how you really mm. celebrate the W. That's a good point. Cause I mean, there's, um, I think that's important, right? So even in a bigger project, you want to try some, find some quick wins um, just to show progress, to help show people that not all change uh, is bad. You know, if they're participating in the change, that that helps a lot with people's comfort levels and get them more, more, more comfortable with change. Um, so I think there's this balance where I think one thing I've tried to get better at is remembering to stop and celebrate. Like, so as a, I don't know if I'm blaming this all on being an engineer, but at least the way I'm wired is to always be looking for the gap. And if you close part of the gap, there's still more work to be done. So you've got to find this balance of celebrating or stabilizing and knowing how, how quickly is the team then going to be uh, accepting of the now what next question, right? Because if you push too hard, people will get upset understandably so of saying, well, you're not acknowledging the progress. You know, you're just, you know, I don't think I yeah. hammer yeah. people, but they might say, well, you're just, you know, if you're, let's say if you're working towards zero harm, um, I believe very strongly and value capture is a firm believes very strongly. The only, uh, the, the only goal you can have for employee harm or patient harm is zero. Now, if you've made a 50% reduction, that is worth celebrating. You're right, Jake. So how do you have intermediate goals? How do you celebrate intermediate progress without losing sight of the need to continue improving. Um, there's certainly an art to that. And there's, there's, there's been times where I've erred too much on being a driver. Let's, let's keep going. Let's, you know, um, without thinking about people, uh, you know, you don't want people to get change fatigue. Sometimes you got to let things stabilize a little bit in that better state before moving on toward the ideal. Yeah, I found much more like success in my life of erring on the full opposite side of where my brain tells me, where I'm like, here's the 20 other things I can go win right now and make yeah. money. And on the other side, I'm like, if I just celebrate the smallest, tiniest thing, like eventually, like this propaganda campaign of me, like, like proselytizing almost what's, what's awesome. Like people are seduced by that. Like they are really brought into, well, I know exactly how to behave now. 
to get treated like I'm awesome, like I'm a professional, like I know what I'm doing, mm-hmm. like that's that's clear and in front of me. And then they're more likely to take that action. And they walk down that road like almost on their own if I celebrate it hard enough. Yeah. And so that's like a core fundament of my approach to projects. I just wanted yeah. to get the Mark Graben flavor. Well, and one other thought that comes to mind is the importance of celebrating the good try. You know, I've seen this um, in, in organizations where, like there's one organization in healthcare that I had the chance to visit a number of times where they were really focused on rapid improvement events. And that could be a whole different discussion around how much is that the focus of your improvement work. But they did this relatively standard thing of, you know, the goal should always be 50% improvement on whatever key metric or metrics you're looking at. 50%? 50. 500. 50% reduction in errors, 50% reduction in lead time, 50% improvement in productivity. Um, and, and quite often they would achieve that. But I went to one of their weekly report outs where a team got up and talked about what they did and they drove something like a 40% improvement. And you know what? That wasn't treated like a failure. That was celebrated. And not in a pat on the back, everyone gets a participation trophy kind of way, but in a sincere, like, wow, to, to quote your t-shirt, Jake, oh, hell yeah. Oh, hell yeah. And, and I think that's important too, you know, because um, driving 40% improvement is not easy. Um, so anything that spurs, I think this push beyond just incremental 3% improvement is um, worth striving for and worth celebrating. Because I think that's the point of setting that 50% goal or setting a goal towards zero harm. It forces people to step outside just the incrementalism that they might be comfortable with. So going back to experiment uh, design, um, I was talking to Avi Fishman uh, down there in Florida and yeah, he was mentioning, yeah, he was mentioning uh, how many hospitals and, and healthcare centers um, struggle with the towels. Like they have these little towel rag things that they use for everything, right? Mm-hmm. And they always need them. And he's just watching the nurses and orderlies and stuff just walk all over to try to find these things. Mm-hmm. That would be an example of a, just do it. You know, like in real time, there's no risk. You can click the undo button immediately. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and it's not gonna, there's not really any risk there. Right. right. Now, if, if you had an idea for uh, redesigning the surgery center mm-hmm. and the number of staff and the way they interact, in you know a heart hospital, well, that's something where you would want to take it offline. You know, maybe you use an unused theater, right, um, and practice as a team, like not on a on a real human, until you have everything down pat um, as a team. So those are two like extreme examples um, that I used, but uh, yeah. There is a line there somewhere, right? Where you have to say, you know what, this, we just like this has to be done offline. It's too risky. Yeah. And, you know, healthcare does a lot of medical simulation, but there's also um, a big opportunity to do, you could call it process simulation. And again, I've seen um, and I've been part of, you know, like, you know, doing mock ups, whether they're at scale or even full size mock ups made out of cardboard or uh, metal and plastic sheeting of like literally. Uh, having a prototype of the unit where, again, you're not going to be doing real patient care, but you can roll real patient beds through with real people on those kind of trying to see what that experience is like as a patient or as a caregiver 
Um, there, there's huge opportunity for that. But you know, back to your point about the towels, you know, there, there, that, that's a solvable problem. That is not rocket science. That is not brain surgery. It is a solvable problem. And as much as we talk about process improvement, sadly, the current state in healthcare is one where you need process definition. I feel like I'm stating fact. I'm not trying to be inflammatory. I think it is a, 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 a reasonably common enough occurrence to say, like, well, you know, there, there's either no process or it's a very loosely defined process or it's very person dependent, which I would say that's also not a process. So there's that Deming quote, you know, if you can't describe it as a process, you don't know what you're doing. So first, you know, you have to define things as a process. Um, and then you can look for opportunities. Where are we storing the towels? How many towels should be there? How often should we be replenishing them? And in what quantity? And who's doing them? And at what time? You know, th this is, you know, goes back to just the fundamentals of defining standard work and defining your process. So that's the first step a lot of times and then trying to set up continuous improvement. I'm going to ask every healthcare person that comes on in the show. So I got to ask you, what is it going to take for the healthcare community to not call me into an office or call me into the lobby area, what have you, as I walk to the door, fill out a piece of paper, sit down, get called back up, handle another piece of paper or information, sit down and then go get called into a room. Why is that my experience in every single health administration I've ever been a part of and what can be done to solve it? I, I don't know the detail. So A, yeah, I mean, that, that's a really common problem. Um, there's a lot of waste there. Uh, B, I don't know the details of it, but I did see a headline recently where there, there are some changes to some of the regulatory standards that would allow for the more purely electronic collection of um, information. So you look at information security and the HIPAA privacy protection laws. I mean, to me, you know, uh, the electronic stuff, while there are risks and flaws, to me, that's way more secure than pieces of paper laying around or back in the days of, you know, paper charts being stored somewhere. So um, yeah, I think a lot of it is just uh, making patient focus a reality. So, you know, just challenge and challenging the way we've always done it. So that room, I mean, I was watching an old Seinfeld episode the other day and part of Jerry's start uh, stand-up was like, they make you wait in the room. They call it the waiting room. They expect they've named it that, you know, and then it's okay. And then they move you back to the exam room, which, and then you like, oh, they move you. That's also, that's the second waiting room. What's the deal? But it, it's true. And that's a problem going back more than 30 years when the Seinfeld stuff was starting. So I know a dentist in Jacksonville, Florida, uh, Sammy Bari, he's written a book that was published by the Lean Enterprise Institute called The Lean Dentist. Um, the original title was called Follow the Learner, which was a bit more esoteric, but I thought there's, there's a great image there. Sammy is the owner of that dental practice being the learner and everyone else learning with him. He um, was able to change his process working with his team to where like, they, do, they don't use the waiting room anymore. You come in as a patient and you go immediately to a chair um, you know, the, the, the exam reclining chair. And then the key is not, is, is not shifting the weight from the room to a chair, but doing things to minimize the weight, which means improving the flow of work and the, and the standard work that has uh, Dr. Bari as the dentist and the, the, the hygienist, you know, 
knowing clearly where they need to be moving next. And they, they created a job called the patient flow coordinator. And in a way, it's really that sort of air traffic control of helping people know where they need to go next in the name of preventing patient delays. So some of it is a mindset, right? If we just take for granted, like waiting is just part of healthcare. If you take that for granted, you're never gonna solve it. Like just one other quick story. You know, I have to go uh, to an ophthalmologist pretty frequently. Um, and I remember sitting in the waiting room because that's what you do. And there was a, a, a very you know, elderly patient who I assume had been driven there by her daughter. Mm -hmm. you know, and they were sitting there talking and, and the elderly patient said, and she said to her daughter, this doctor must be very good because look how many people are waiting. <laughs> uh, that's an interesting perspective. Uh, but so there's that level. And then there's the level of, and, and this has been made worse during the pandemic with people delaying care or not being able to get in for care. Um, you know, stories of like, you know, somebody's, you know, gosh, gotten a cancer diagnosis and you, then you can't get in for an appointment for a month for any sort of treatment, like, you know, and yeah, they'll try to prioritize, I guess, if you have a more aggressive cancer, but there, there's this need to prevent waiting times, the waiting for appointment, and then the waiting in the waiting room time, that's a big opportunity in healthcare. I'm, I'm just waiting for the days of like the six flag golden flash pass approach, like skip all the gunshot wounds because my tummy hurts. <laughs> you know? It's it's going to be right here, probably, right? I already pay for my latte with this, right? I imagine we're not that far away from you walk in and, bloop, you know, and that's your identification. Um, it's a solvable problem in, right. in, in, in France, and I'm not going to say their healthcare system is perfect because for all the countries I've visited, um, th there's always some problem at some point in the health system. It's, it's never perfect. But in France, you have a national patient ID card. It's basically like an ATM card, and you come in and you, you know, they, they, I don't know if that's part of the phone now, but, you know, you could store so much information in a chip on a card. Yeah. And, um, you know, that, that's you know, something we haven't solved here in the U.S. yet, amongst other problems that we have. So talking about process definition versus process improvement, you know, like where are you on the spectrum? Um, I'm going to make up an example here from a hospital. But, um, you know, you, you go from sort of execution to process to value stream, right? So imagine a sterile processing department and they want to improve and so they change their process maybe they even document it you know and then you have a surgeon who rings down you know i just dropped my scalp and stepped on it i need a number two well there's none clean mm -hmm. there's none clean because we changed our process right and that's the upstream downstream effect of process change right so there i have witnessed some risk in uh businesses that I've worked with where you might have a section that can move and improve faster than the rest. Um, and by not sort of documenting the whole value stream, you know, mm -hmm. from front to end, they end up making some of those higher risk right. uh, mistakes. Well, I mean, so I think there's what I hear in your scenario is the need to break down silos mm -hmm. that local improvement should not be, increasing the problems to the customer. And, and for that instrument sterilization process, I would say the surgeon is the customer. 
as a proxy for the patient. Like the, the, these interests right. are often very linked together. The surgeon's efficiency and the patient's need for efficiency of not being delayed or, or worse, let's say they're already under anesthesia. Some sort of delay is medically bad for the patient, not just operationally bad for the surgeon in the hospital. Um, but you, know, you, you need to anticipate and look and say, well, you can't expect that a surgeon's never going to drop an instrument because guess what, we're human. And building in a, a, enough buffer into the system, we're looking at these trade-offs, it's like inventory. I mean, sure, the ideal is one piece flow, but I've seen way too many factories and organizations like literally kill their business because they stripped out all the inventory ahead of their capability to support flow. Mm-hmm. Yeah, This is just in time. We don't need to actually produce product anymore because <laughs> nothing is here. <laughs> well, zero waste, you know, well, if you're not creating value, you have a zero waste business right there. <laughs> yeah. So there, there's, you know, I think big needs to, and I've seen this a lot, better support, the need to better support the surgeon through better process. You know, I think yeah. we'd step back to the ideal that the system you think of like how the, the system works at Toyota of a designed process and system to ensure the flow of parts so that team member on the assembly always has the right parts at the right quality at the right place at the right time. There's a huge opportunity to improve that in healthcare. The right instruments sterilized to the right quality safety level, the right instruments, the right place, the right time. And, and, having, and, and, and having a controlled system where like in manufacturing, you could let the pendulum swing too far. We've had some problems and now we bring in a ton of buffer inventory. You got got Mm -hmm. to find a balance where if the surgeons start putting in too many what if or just in case instruments into the tray, you might be constantly cycling instruments that are opened. Now, therefore they're dirty, but they weren't used. And now you're having to sterilize them. How do you look at like the core set of instruments that we know are going to be needed versus the, the buffer or the backup or the just in case so that you don't wait for that time, even in an expedited process for the instrument to be sent down to sterile processing, re-sterilized and sent back up, especially something as inexpensive as a scalpel. You know, you should never know, let- I, I've never got to warn you, if you let John scenario test you, we'll yeah. be here the rest of the afternoon. Uh, sure. Sutures. Clips, scalpel, electric melon baller. Yes, we are all set. Whatever comes down the pipe, yeah. we're going to take care of it. Yeah. So, I, you know, this is fun. I do. I, my, my plan for the day here on a Saturday in California is to go uh, out for a walk and uh, go, go see my sea lion friends out here on the docks of the marina because they are awesome. very active this time of year, um, wrestling and barking and jumping in and out of the water. Not, yeah. not that you guys make me think of that. Mm-hmm. I'm the Lean Six Sigma Sea Lion. You can say it. You can well, say there you it go. Out loud. New headline. Yeah. Mark, we really appreciate you spending your time with us this well, afternoon. Unfortunately, that is the end of the time. Um, thanks for coming on. Of course, you're yeah. always welcome back. Do you have um, a way for folks to contact you? Yeah, uh, I'm kind of obnoxiously easy to find online. Um, Say that again. Like you, you Google Mark, and it fills out Graben in the rest of the Google search. <laughs> you, get, you get like Mark Grace from the Chicago Cubs. If you try to, uh, oh, I don't. I don't. Google Auto-Cook. knows better than to put sports into my yeah. Google. Um, so yeah, I, I can be found on LinkedIn. Uh, my website is markgraben.com. Uh, my my blog is leanblog.org. Those are the 
the main ways. But yeah, I'm, I'm easily findable. Don't send me a message through Instagram because like for years, I didn't even know Instagram had a messaging function and people were sending me lean questions. I'm like, oh, I'm not a heavy Instagram user. And uh, I'm also, I'm not on TikTok. And if that makes me old, so be it. You never responded to my Snapchat. Yeah, I don't know what that is either. <laughs> I, I'm almost Bill Belichick of like, what did he say that one time of like, your your face chats and your snap books and whatever. I'm, I'm a little, I'm not that grumpy old man yet, but give me time. Well, Mark, thank you for coming on the show. We will put your links down below uh, for folks who want to get in touch. As always, to everybody out there in YouTube land, goodbye. <laughs> Uh, John, I have a great one for you. We hadn't had a chance to talk about, but my Toyota Corolla. Uh, oh, I'm lying. It's not a Toyota anymore. My Honda Civic, at least, which I can't seem to distinguish brands because I suck at cars, uh, is very dirty. And on the back, I, I wrote in with my finger, Nima, wash me. And nobody has laughed at it. <laughs> nobody has laughed at it. <laughs> I, I understand why nobody laughed at that, yeah. Jake. <laughs> it's so esoteric. <laughs>